Welcome to the Imago Day Community Podcast. Good morning, Imago Day. It is so good to be with you. Um, we are down to the wire for Christmas. That's crazy. So if you are taking off this week, we want to wish you a Merry Christmas. I know so many of you head out of town and uh, others of you are coming, have family coming into town and whatnot. We hope that you can join us uh, for those Christmas Eve services. If you are out of town, please join us online. That would be awesome. We uh, today are in our fourth week of Advent, and we've been walking through this book, uh, this passage in Isaiah 61, where it talks about a future day when the anointed king, the spirit-anointed king would come and would proclaim good news to the poor. That would be one of the major distinctions that the Messiah King would come and do. You know, if you could build a, a human society from the ground up, like this was your job, and, and where everyone, at least on paper, was committed to following the rules. How would you do it? If you could build a society from the ground up so that every human in that society would flourish and everyone on paper was committed to the rule, following the rules, what would it look like? And the only hitch in it is that every single person in that society is also a sinner. So that could screw things up uh, a little bit, or perhaps incredibly well. Um, you know, throughout history, we know that these attempts have been made to form and reform spiritual communities around holy ideals and gospel commitments. And the results have been mixed. On the one hand, you have these sort of incredible monastic communities that have lasted for hundreds of years and lived by sets of orders that were simplistic and gone quite well. On the other hand, you have anywhere from communes to cults that have not gone so well. And despite all of our evolutionary and technological advances, we still can't seem to figure out how to create a world of human flourishing for everyone. Now, there's a lot of talk around poverty, uh, a lot of judgments, a lot of concerns, a lot of stereotypes and political philosophy and opinion. I love to say there's a lot of debate. There's not a lot of debate anymore. There's just a lot of uh, opinions. And, and it's interesting that we're in this time where everybody sees themselves as a prophet and no one wants to be the priest, right? Which makes it a strange and noisy world because prophets were strange and the world gets very noisy. So everyone has a prophetic opinion but nobody wants to serve souls in need. 
When the God of Israel had to set up a human community in the Sinai wilderness of a nation who were a people without land, without king, without government, and they were freshly uh, rescued from slavery after 400 years, he faced the challenge of what would it be what would, what would it require to become a functioning nation that was built for human flourishing, that was centered around the love of God and the rule of God? And despite being surrounded by these empires and nations that were all around the people of Israel, that were ran on domination and oppression and power and might, God, through Moses, laid out what it would mean to belong to the people of Israel and what it would mean to be a nation of neighborliness and human flourishing. We, we know the first kind of uh, where it started with the Ten Commandments and Sadly, when we think of the Ten Commandments, we have mistakenly reduced those to these moral obligations laid down by a prudish God. But if you really look at those Ten Commandments, what they are at the heart of the Big Ten, as they were called back in Israel's day, um, was about living together in a way where we loved God and neighbor well. And if we got these 10 right, then human flourishing became a real possibility. Whether you were rich or poor, you could live hospitably and neighborly as equals before God in humility and worship. Unfortunately, God had the same issue that you and I would have if we built a human community from the ground up, is that everyone was still selfish and self-focused. There was still class systems and power dynamics, and even when God is your king, there is a fundamental brokenness in the human population that makes utopia a long shot. And because the God of Israel has a jealous love, a deep fatherly love for all who bear his image, he made sure when he laid out the laws for Israel that the people who found themselves in poverty or the vulnerable who throughout history in every empire, and ours is no exception, are the most at risk God made it of high importance that Israel would hear and obey the laws and the commands to care for and look out for the vulnerable and to make sure not to take advantage of or oppress people simply because they didn't have the means to protect themselves. When we get to the book of Leviticus after Exodus and the Big Ten have been laid out, we find specific laws that are laid out when it comes to protecting and caring for the poor. We have a, a slide that I'll just, I just want to bump through some of these. 
One is the sacrificial system was amended for the poor so that they could make a sacrifice even if they, that they could afford. God made stipulation, bring me what you have. When it came to harvesting, there, God set a limit on how many times people could harvest their field. You could only go one time through. And when you were done, what you couldn't pick was for the poor, not just for them, but it belonged to them. God even set parameters around the field where the edges of the field belonged to the poor. Something tells me that in a technological age like ours, we continue to find ways to make sure that there's nothing left to be gleaned. God commanded that justice could not be perverted, that judges could not show favoritism against the, the poor. Families were responsible for helping each other through poverty. Everyone was called to treat those who found themselves in circumstances of poverty as they would a stranger or a foreigner, meaning show them hospitality. Welcome them, because you yourselves were strangers and foreigners in Egypt. If someone became poor, they had the option of basically selling themselves as a slave in that day. And that was so that they could secure food and shelter and work. And God made a command that says, even if someone does that, you cannot treat them as a slave. And all of these commands, and there are much more, also included Jubilee, which was every seven years, all debts would be forgiven. So when we look at what God laid out for Israel, we realize he didn't suggest human dignity and flourishing and economic opportunity. He commanded it. But there is always a but, right? And any, any good economics professor would look at what God laid out and go, this is not a great way to make money. And when you add to this no working on the Sabbath, that you just go, there's no way of keeping up with the Joneses, especially the Joneses in Cana. And so the people, what did they do? They didn't obey. They took advantage of the poor. They did all the things that every other empire did. And when God goes to enforce his laws in the Old Testament, what he does is he sends a prophet. And what the prophet does is he holds up a mirror to Israel to show them what they have done, that to reflect back sort of their sin, but also to hold up God and his holiness and his heart and sort of like the, the way that they have reduced and belittled their holy God who had saved them. Isaiah has been our Advent prophet. And the interesting thing is Isaiah was also the prophet that God sent to call Israel out on their sin against the poor. Just a few verses to show you 
where Isaiah does this. It says, they refused the poor access to the harvest. In Isaiah chapter 3, verse 14, he says, it is you who have ruined my vineyard. The plunder from the poor is in your houses. Meaning, they refused access to the poor to access the harvest. They thought of the fields as their fields, as their own, not God's and the poor's. And God says, you have ruined my vineyard. Their plunder is in your houses. Israel was showing favoritism and partiality against the poor. And so we see in Isaiah 10 too, that you deprive the poor of their rights, withhold justice from the oppressed of my people, making widows their prey and robbing the fatherless. God condemns this. God also rejected their fasts and their religious festivals because they had rejected God and his commands to care for the poor. In Isaiah 58, verse seven, it says, is it not... Is this not the fast, essentially, I desire to share your food with the hungry and to provide the poor wanderer shelter? And when you see the naked, to clothe them and not to turn away from your own flesh and blood. And what happens is God's own people are not seeing that their brother and sister in the face of those who find themselves in these situations, they're not seeing the image of God in them. Instead, they see someone that they could blame or take advantage of or withhold justice from. In Isaiah 32, verse 7, the prophet says, Scoundrels use wicked methods. They make up evil schemes to destroy the poor with lies and when the plea of the needy, even when the plea of the needy is just. And on and on, the prophet cries out against Israel primarily because of how they have treated the poor and the marginalized. And then we get to Isaiah 61. The spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. In other words, Isaiah points to a day when the Messiah King is going to come and proclaim good news to a poor, the poor in a world where the news is most often bad. It is a very big deal to God when his people neglect the poor. As we rehearse the Advent story, every year we do this, we tell the story, but it's important, I think, to use our imaginations and understand the conditions in which Jesus was born. He didn't choose to show up in the wealthiest of families. He didn't choose to be born in an influential part of town. He didn't choose to be born into a good name and great standing. He didn't do any of that. I love this quote by Scott Bessenecker from his book, The New Friars. He says this, why on earth would God choose to be born among a defeated people in a backwoods town under the shadow of dishonor through a dirt-poor, unwed teenager. 
That's a good question. Solidarity. That's why. The very first statement Jesus ever voiced about his concern for the poor or the oppressed or marginalized people was when he cried out as one of them. Eyes shut tight, mouth open wide, wailing and kicking, shaking and dripping with blood and amniotic fluid. It was one of the most profound acts of solidarity with the poor that he could make. He cast his lot not with the world's emperors or with the rich and powerful, but with the world's demoralized peasants. When Jesus voted with his birth, he voted for the poor. It was the fulfillment of a long-awaited plan for God to live among the people that he had made. And so this command that we move from from Sinai to Isaiah the prophet to the fulfillment where now the anointed one has come not only to enforce sort of the 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 proclamation of good news to the poor but to take on the very poverty himself We know that the family Jesus was born into was a poorer family because when Jesus shows up at the temple to be dedicated on the eighth day, Joseph and Mary bring sort of two pigeons. They brought the sacrifice that was amended for a poorer family. Jesus showed up in the midst of a moment where no one was looking, where the poor were continued to be trampled on even by God's own people, and the anointed one is missed. God himself showing up in the midst of the world, the incarnation, God in flesh, and we all miss it because he showed up among the poor. Finally, when he begins his ministry, we we talked about this last week, he goes into the temple and he opens the scroll to Isaiah 61 and he reads uh, the passage and he says, this is me, I am here to fulfill this, the prophecy has come true, I am the anointed one to proclaim good news to the poor. There's a moment where John the Baptist is not sure, even after everything that Jesus has done, if Jesus is really the Messiah, it's it's an interesting kind of moment, and he's in prison, and he's kind of like, this isn't how this is supposed to go, and so he sends disciples to go, Jesus, are you the one, or is there another one coming, and Jesus' response is simply, Go back, tell John what you've seen and heard. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, the leprosy is clean, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. And so what is this good news that Jesus is proclaiming? Why proclaim? Why not fix? If you're gonna flip one table at the temple, why not flip all the tables But instead, what we find is the good news that Jesus preaches shows up in Luke chapter 6, verse 20, and it's just a very simple verse. He says, 
says, looking at the disciples, he said, blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Meaning the kingdom belongs to the poor. Not, not, not in a way that, uh, you know, it's, oh, that's nice. They get kind of a little piece of the kingdom. No, Jesus is saying unequivocally that they are uniquely loved and cared for by God with a protective love. That while they have experienced the downside of empires, that the kingdom of God is flipped upside down and it belongs to them. So much so that Jesus himself has aligned himself with the poor, identifying himself so personally that he tells us to love, to serve, to care for people in poverty or on the margins is to do it unto Jesus himself. Jesus chose to make himself poor so that he could lavish us with his riches. And what this means is that there is something uniquely, uniquely given to the poor in terms of the kingdom, that if you want to seek the kingdom, if you want to see Jesus, then you must be where Jesus is then you must participate where the kingdom of God is at. There is, there is this upside down thinking about charity or that we give all these nice things or we do good deeds. That is not what we're doing. When we give to clean water, when we participate in the city, what we are doing is seeking first the kingdom of God. And where the kingdom of God is, is with the poor. And that's where Jesus is. Because he said, when you have done it to them, you have done it to me. This is, not, uh, this is not good people doing something nice for other people. This is, this is people longing to see the Savior. So they're going to find where the Savior is. That's a very different vision than we do nice things for people. I love what James tells us in James chapter two, verse five. He says, listen, my dear brothers and sisters, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised to those who love him? And so when it comes to a message like this, I think we can be all over the place. Like it rattles me personally. Uh, I feel like I practice generosity. I don't feel like an example of someone who has sold everything they have and given it to the poor. One of the struggles that I always find myself in when it comes to that question about human flourishing is that I want to go up to the top of the problem and figure out how do we fix it? How do we solve the global water crisis? 
Or how do we put an end to the houselessness? And I, I think it comes from two places. One is not a healthy place, and one I think is kind of a healthy place. Um, one is seeing a crisis, seeing a problem, and think we should be able to do something about it. We can change it. And, and it's here that, that we bypass people and we start to assume that we can like fix something. Uh, talking about poverty, talking about its implications and systems and brokenness. And at the 50,000 foot level, I can think, man, I'm with Jesus in all of this. But if I'm honest, that's not where Jesus is. Jesus is with the people, present with them in the moment, in the process, in the experience. There's a, a good place, though, that I think I go to when I look at the possibility of what the church is supposed to be in the world. And the good place is the vision of the kingdom now, right? We live in this moment where the kingdom is already here, but it's not yet here. And we feel the effects of the not yet. There's too much not yet. So we groan for the kingdom to come and its fulfillment. But the church is here right now. And it is mobilized. Millions of followers of Jesus gathered across the globe in tons of different ways. Houses and cathedrals and little weird spots all over the world to worship the king week in and week out. And we are a people who claim to have allegiance to Jesus as our king only and his kingdom and to say that his kingdom is the way it should be on earth just like heaven, which means that together as a com community, we have this collective power in the spirit to display the kingdom of God and how we relate to each other and those in our city and those around the globe. And it's an opportunity not to be saviors because we need saviors. It's an opportunity to seek the savior and his kingdom. And, and what happens is when we actually engage and seek Jesus in the face of our brothers and sisters. And, and we, we seek Jesus in their face that in relationship and in compassion. Then we are transformed by Jesus through those relationships. Right? We're not exchanging a transaction of a good deed. I'm using your need to make me feel better about myself. We're actually spiritually engaged in the mystery of the kingdom. Where I am seeking Jesus and I find him in the face of this person. And they are hearing in my seeking the good news that Jesus is proclaiming to them. And, and all of us are participating in mystery at that point. Do you understand what I'm saying? Because I don't know if I'm saying it very good. <laughs> this is really complicated. 
But we always have the tendency to reduce this mystery of the kingdom to something transactional or, or, or something else rather than this relational dynamic where, where the poor may be waiting to hear the good news proclaimed for Jesus to show up. And Jesus says, I am uniquely with them. And we seek Jesus and his kingdom. And in that interaction, we all experience the king. For 12 years, we have been, through Advent Conspiracy, trying to seek Jesus and the kingdom by loving those that he gave the kingdom to and by seeking his face uh, in these amazing people who continue to teach us about Jesus in the kingdom. And for the last several years, the last four, we have partnered uh, with the Water Project in Kenya. And I'm gonna invite my wife, Jeannie McKinley, to come join me up here, if you would welcome her as we tell some stories today. Yes. Hello. Hello, how are you? Hello, first lady. <laughs> no. I know, I know, I heard that so Sorry. Oh, sorry, it's too much. All right, we've never really done this before in 22 years, so I feel like TBN a little bit. For those of you at home. It's a little cringy. <laughs> I'm cringing a little bit. All right, so let's get to the stuff. Okay. So we have been partnering with the Water Project. Uh, you're serving on the board of the Water Project now. In the, since 2016, we've done 53 projects. I'm just gonna read the stats. We've, we've been able, and it's really uh, Wawasifo, so yes. that's doing the work. So tell them a little bit yeah. about that. So the Water Project is an organization that um, is coming alongside local, um, leaders, really, who are doing these amazing projects within their communities. So there's several different partners that they have um, throughout several different places in Africa. So um, our main partners are in Western Kenya, and one of them is called Wawasifo, and that's a, a long acronym for basically a water and sanitation yeah. <laughs> um, project. And then another partner is Friends of Tiffany, Timothy. And those are the, the groups that we are in relationship with. And so through those partnerships, we've been able together to do 53 clean water projects, which have impacted 18,000 people, 26 schools, 27 communities, and Imago Central has given about $370,000 since 2016. Yeah, good job, yeah. you guys. <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> and it's one thing to talk about, like, these 53 things, but it really comes down to the stories, the personal impact. Uh, we're going to watch a before and after video, so tell us a little bit about what we're going to see in this before video. Um, the before video, this... Uh, we had the opportunity to go twice in 2018 to, to Western Kenya and see some of our projects before and then after. Um, and then we had another group go in 2019 as well. So we, we, 
we've had four different groups go um, visit and um, just be a part of these relationship building trips um, that have been really life-changing for, for all of us that have gone, I know, because of the relationships. And so this, um, this is Florida's spring and you'll, you'll meet her herself and her grandmother and her mom and um, yeah, it was just amazing to be there before the project. They had been waiting. It's a, it's a process, you know. It's, um, they come alongside the communities to prepare the supplies that are needed to, to provide, whether it's a well or spring protection. Um, and, it's, and it's a process. It takes time. Um, they were in that waiting phase when we went to meet them. Um, and they were just, you know, hoping for clean water in their community. And so we got a chance to meet Florida and her mom and her grandmother and, and several of their community members and be with them. And Zach cool. took an amazing video of that. So we'll watch that now. All right, let's watch. Florida Sharifa, and I'm in Standard Six. I learned in Mwihomo Primary School, and when I come back from school, I help my mother going to to fetch water in the spring. When when I am sitting, I can't I can't remember what I, I was learning in in school because I am so tired. To, to go and to the spring to, to, to fetch water. I want to teach chemistry and biology because I am good in science and English. And we've sent about 30 people, right, over there from Mago. Yeah, we've had, we would have had another trip that we had to cancel, um, February of 2020, because of COVID. Yeah. So we hope at some point to be able to begin this rhythm of relationship building um, again. And you had mentioned, like, so that they're drinking out of this unprotected stream, mm -hmm. the grandmother her entire life, 
And when you were there, that it has frogs in it, and it's just, there's a lot of disease. Yeah, they, you know, they, it's, it's, a, it's a natural spring that turns into a pond, essentially, and that's where they're gathering their water. It's the most reliable, accessible water point closest to, you know, where they live. And so um, the, these water points are, are not clean. They, they get typhoid. They, they have dysentery, malaria, you know, all those waterborne diseases that happen. And um, as well as the travel time to go fetch the water. So kids, especially girls, are unable to go to school because they're, you know, busy trying to get water. And in certain seasons, they have to travel further to, to find those water points. Um, as well as, you know, time lost from school from being sick. And as, you know, the mom and the grandmother mentioned, the expense involved in having to buy medication and, and you know, take care of, of everyone as they're, as they're sick. So it's, it's a big deal. And at schools, they, you know, also don't have clean water. So if, if they do, if they are at school, often have to take time off of school in, during the day to go fetch water as for the school as well. And again, that usually lands on the girls. So um, the opportunity for clean water is profoundly impacting, especially for the girls to stay in school and have education. And it means so much to them. Um, we met a family that was on break. The, the kids were on break. And, and I was asking the kids, like, what are you going to do on your break? And, and they were like, I'm going to study. I'm like, oh, come on, you know? But no, they really, they really meant that. I believe that they actually, yeah, they're really gonna study on their break because it means so much to them, education does. So this is just one, you know, minute piece of what it means to, for them to have clean water. And this week, um, we got a video sent to us. Yeah. Do you wanna set that yeah, up? Yeah, I mean, that was a surprise. I knew they were gonna, you know, you, you've seen our friends from Kenya, Humphrey and Catherine, do some calls to worship and, and pray. And um, yeah, I expected that kind of a video this week. Um, and, you know, we'll watch this. And I was just instant tears, just <laughs> so great. So let's watch the video. Okay. Hello, Imago Day community. My name is Humphrey. I work uh, with the Water Project here in Western Kenya. And my name is Catherine. It is December, and we are back in Florida's community. Part of what Imago Day and TWP do is not only to help communities to get clean water, but to make sure that the water continues to flow year after year. In our partnership, we make sure that uh, the good news of clean water continues to be good news into the future. We, of course, are happy to be here with our daughter, Florida. We have her mother here and her grandmother, together with community members who draw water from this particular spring that uh, we worked together to fix. Um, our friends at Imago Day, I'm seated here with Florida. Uh, she's now a big girl. The last time uh, you saw her, she was uh, small. She was in grade uh, seven, but right now she's in grade nine. She's doing so well in school, and we are happy for her. So, Florida, how are you? I'm so fine. You're good? Yeah, I'm good. Okay, how has life been since uh, this water point was constructed? Uh, my life has been so good and impressive. 
since you came to create this spring and to this community, mm -hmm. generally, even myself, I'm so strong and much healthier. Wow, we are so glad to hear that from you, Florida. And um, how, how does it make you feel, uh, uh, especially uh, in the case of your mom and in the case of your grandma and generally people in your, your area? Generally, as you can see, I and my family and my community, we are feeling so good and we are feeling so wonderful for what you did and to our life. So Florida, what do you want to tell your friends uh, back in Mago Day? I'm so glad to hear what your friends have been saying here about you. And I would like so one day, one time I'll see you face to face actually and uh, to see how you are going on with your life. Wow. To all our friends at Imago Day, thank you for your love of Florida, her community, and so many other communities in Western Kenya. Your love and your support to provide clean water to communities is good news in Western Kenya. From all of us here in Kenya, we are saying Merry Christmas! So awesome. Can you, can you talk yeah. after that? <clears throat> I just, so I think it's such a, it's an example of that all these data points, 53 projects, X amount of people, that, that everyone is a story like that. And, and to see three generations affected, and you had mentioned like with the grandmother, just, so, so strange that she has lived so long. Um, it is. It's rare to have old, an older generation, and so it's it's an amazing gift. I can't even imagine. We had another project that you know you you guys may remember seeing some video from with 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 a grandmother and who had never had clean water, and the gift for her to get to see her children and grandchildren and, and future, you know generations to get to have that, that they have gotten to see that happen in their lifetime is yeah. just so profound, so. Yeah, so this Christmas, our hope is to do more of those projects, and that's, if you're able to come at Christmas Eve, that's one of the major gifts that the Advent Conspiracy offering will go to. We're, we're working with the Water Project to really saturate uh, this area of Western Kenya. Yeah, and it's really a picture of the kingdom, just what Rick was just talking about. I mean, we look, we look at their community, we see they don't have clean water, and, and it's easy to think, oh, there's real poverty here. And, and yes, and also, for me, what I have learned so much of is just my own poverty. They, they have Jesus in such a unique and special way and, and I see, you know, suffering comes or something hard comes and my first reaction is, ooh, God doesn't like me or, you know, or God's left the building and, and it's just like a cri emotional crisis or a spiritual crisis. And, and what I learned from my friends in Kenya is that God is with them and, and when hard times come, God is with us. He's, he hasn't left, he's not... You know, he doesn't not love us. He actually loves us so much. And, and so that's, that's the beauty of getting yeah. to be in these relationships and, and what I am learning from friends in Kenya. So 
we just are looking forward to continued relationship and for you guys to get to know them more and more as much as possible. Yeah. But how cool to be able to do this virtually. I mean, to have yeah. a video in a week and, yeah, and get to cool. have an update on, on Florida totally. and our communities. This huge gift. Maybe we'll so. get, her, get Florida here one day. Yeah, that would be amazing. <laughs> All right. Thank, yeah, thanks. Thank you. Thank you. I love you. Good job. As we, as we wrap up today, <clears throat> the, um, you know, we think about where we started back in God's vision for human flourishing in Sinai. It's fascinating to me that God's answer to putting the world right uh, was to become, to come down and to become one of us. 2 Corinthians 8, 9 says, Jesus, though, for you know the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that through his poverty, uh, so that you through his poverty might become rich. The reason that we are here today is because of Jesus, the poor one, Right? And we are invited to step into relationship with Jesus to find him and his kingdom in the lives of Florida and the people in Portland and others around us. And, and so giving whatever we give as, is our way to enter the story of Jesus, to seek his kingdom, to seek his face, as an act of faith so that we don't miss the kingdom ourselves. And when we do that, we get to watch Jesus be the one to proclaim good news, not just to the poor, but to us as well. And so, Imago Day, my prayer is that as we enter this Christmas week, that it would be a week of worship for you, a, a week where we are really struck with awe that the God of the universe became poor to make us rich, but also a week where our hearts are stirred to seek the kingdom, to seek the face of Jesus, to not want to miss it. And so we join Jesus in participating in these acts of generosity so that we don't miss the kingdom ourselves. Let's pray. Father God, we come to you today and we recognize that before you, um, we all stand poor and needy and without any ability to earn or buy our way into your favor. And because of your love and your grace and your mercy, you have pursued us in Jesus, who gave up everything he had and chose to relinquish it in absolute poverty to the point of death on the cross so that so that we could not just be forgiven 
but that we could be lavished with the riches of Christ. And I pray that we wouldn't take this personal salvation and kind of own it in some privatized way, but we would see that salvation as an entry point to this upside-down kingdom where we get to participate in the mystery of heaven on earth, where we get to seek you, Jesus, and seek your kingdom as it breaks in right here in Portland and in Kenya and around the world. We don't want to miss it. And so attune our hearts to find you in those places that you have come to dwell uniquely among these wonderful, beautiful people. We pray these things in Jesus' precious name. And everybody said, amen. Merry Christmas, Imago.